Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for Podcast. of a problem. Just carefully line up things with the socket and ever so carefully screw it in. Ah, there you are. Stop what you're doing. I know what you're up to and I'm having no more of it. What? Changing a light bulb? Are you sure you're not going to perhaps... Make the light bulb just a little bit sentient. Like you have everything else on this ship. Careful down there, Leo. You're shaking my stepladder. Of course I'm not trying to make the light fitting sentient. That'd be stupid and pointless. Well, good. I'm glad you think that. Illumination-based technology is always brutally existential about the universe existing when not turned on to light it. Makes some very silly conversations at bedtime. Now, see, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Since you discovered the sentient thought source code in other Justin's server, you've been cut and pasting it into everything you can get your hands on. This is going to be a telling-off conversation, I can tell. Hang on, let me get down first. It was all fine at first. I mean, you discovered and inadvertently created other Justin. As, as for the cyber wife, well, what's done is done. But then you had to go further and start tweaking everything else on this spaceship. Suddenly, we get unusually chatty thermostats, alarm clocks that moan to you about daylight savings, vending machines that compliment you in sultry tones about losing weight. Oh, before urging you to treat yourself for being good and waving a Mars bar at you coquettishly. You get Mars bars? She must like you. All I get is discounted bounty bars you can't shift. But then today, I was just sitting there, on the loo, doing what nature intended, when all of a sudden, piping up from beneath me. Goodness me, Mr. Stableford. Spicy peppers for tea again. Will you never learn... Oh, yes, E.T. can be a bit chatty. I'll tweak that. E.T.? Electric Toilet. He likes to be called E.T. Normally, he just recommends a good magazine article to read whilst you're, well, there. And we have a nice chat about it after. Just like being at the barber. Out! I want it out. I want them all out. No more talking toilets or the Bose vacuum cleaners. We have the wife ship's computer and other Justin done. Don't need to have emotional relationships with tin openers, thank you. Leo, you're not seeing the bigger picture. I haven't just been creating sentient life on a whim. Come to that. Where is other Justin? I went to chat with him about his thoughts on a particular horror movie franchise the other day and his server was gone. I threw that old thing out. I made a Rubik's Cube sentient. Oh, God. And downloaded other Justin into that. Okay. 
strange thing to do. Where is that now? It was creeping me out by asking to be sold all the time, so I put it away somewhere. I forget where exactly. We wouldn't have this issue if our cupboards were sentient, you know. Life has many small first world hurdles for you, Ian. You can't solve them all by sticking a brain chip inside everything to do your thinking for you. The human mind is a labyrinth of maddening design and long suppressed perversions lurking beneath all of us in the prison of decency and normality we've built brick by brick around ourselves in denial of our true nature. Computer thought is uncluttered, geometric, a weave of mathematical beauty and purity. Why not have it do our thinking for us? Oh, really? <clears throat> Wife, are you there? Hello? What is it now? Can't you tell I'm really busy? Ian was just wondering if you wanted to do all his thinking for him. Tell him to bog off. See? That being said, I've had men telling me what to think my whole life, so I do appreciate the gesture. Oh, whatever. I don't suppose you know where other Justin's Cube is, do you, Sue? No. Ah. Oh, wait a second. Regular Justin was toying with him earlier in his room. Justin on Justin action. Well, there you go. I suppose whilst you're off talking to Justin and Justin, you'll want me to be going about committing mass electronic genocide. No, come with me. I'll need you about for the show. Oh, very well. Lay on, Macduff. Well, thank you, Sue. That was very helpful. Oh, no, that's okay. My pleasure. Men, totally clueless. Dark, dirty and full of dangling hooks on chains. Don't think much of Justin's interior design. It's still more tasteful than turning your quarters into a replica of the classic TARDIS console room. At least my quarters is tidy. Ugh. Can't be good hygiene having all this ripped flesh on the floor. I thought Justin was a vegetarian. So he doesn't eat meat. Doesn't mean he's anti-flaying as such. Hello, boys. Ah, Hubba Justin, there you are. I almost didn't see you on that blood-soaked mattress. Let me pick you up. Where's real Justin gone? I can't help shaking this feeling that something bad happened here. Ah, oh, don't be worrying about all that. Say, why don't one of you two guys try solving me? I'm all jumbled up. Indeed. You're really in a lamentable configuration there. Wait, what did I just say? Let me have a go. I used to spend hours toying with my own cube back in the 80s. It took you hours to solve a cube. Wow. The average for cube aficionados is normally four minutes. I never said I solved it. Ah. Uh, hey, Leo. How about you try and solve me? Go on. It'll make you feel good. Um, what? Sorry, a bit distracted here. I can't help feeling a strange sense of deja vu. What does this remind me of? Jamie! Jamie and the Magic Torch! Did you ever see that? I love that show. What were they on when they made that? His flashlight opens a portal down to a helter-skelter world of fun and excitement. Woo! Mad times, huh? Start the who now? Willow the Wisp, evil witch who's a television. Bonkers. Am I right? Are you trying to distract me about something other, Justin? Uh, no. Why would I do that? <laughs> Say, how are you going up there, big fella? Well, I've got one of the sides of the Rubik's Cube all green. I'm just wondering if I can do the other five sides without messing it up. 
Oh, that will have to do. Surprise! <laughs> Ooh, a secret room. I don't remember that on the deck plans. Looks a bit overlit in there, though. And far too much dry ice. Shush here, and I think... Oh, God. Not quite. Justin, what's happened to you? Yeah, was it some accident with a nail gun, or was it one of those facelifts on the cheap? Blasphemy! This is the face of pain itself. We have gone a bit overboard with the piercings. I explore dimensions of exquisite sensations, delights of torment and suffering unending. Have you been watching Slipstream again? Ian, come on, we have to run. Why? Justin's gone all goth. No, screw that. These chains, that box, Justin's transformation, it's Hellraiser, Ian. Sure is. Time for a new segment on the podcast I call Hell Eye for the 80s, guys. Who's for a makeover? Oh, oh, pick me. No, Ian, it's a trap. Oh, you say that all the time. If it wasn't for you, a Nigerian prince would have made me very rich by now. Step forth, morsel. Yay! Hmm. I think in black leather, riveted into his body for the post-industrial look. Cut out some holes in the chest to show off the flayed nipples, because that is so in right now. Bold, with a circular saw mohawk impacted into his skull. That would make such a striking silhouette. But let's not forget the details, guys. A pedicure with fish hooks peeling back the fingernails. Soon you shall be so exquisitely empty, broken and eternal. Ian, quick! Throw me the Rubik's Cube! Oh, sure. Catch! No! No! Oh, yes! Bit of a weak spot there. The whole box that summons you can banish you, Malarkey. I mean... It's not as bad as aliens who are allergic to water. But it's on the list. Jumble time! Hey, uh, what the hell just happened there? And why do I have a headache? The last thing I remember was toying with a Rubik's Cube, then it all went a bit 80s music video. It seems we have a traitor in our midst. Justin Wyatt. Jackoos! No, not him. Other Justin. Hey, I'm no traitor. I did it for the team. Over a hundred podcasts and no Hellraiser retrospective. And allying with Dark Forces, I just thought to make it, you know, topical. Well, I say we take this wretched namesake of mine and make it a topic in a very brief discussion about what to put in the waste grinder. What's a Hellraiser? You don't know what a Hellraiser is? Clive Barker, Doug Bradley and my favourite horror franchise ever. Oh, horror again. More torture porn. Yawn. You really are a cultural dot. Unless the film's got laser guns and killer robots in it, you just can't be bothered, can you, Ian? You could put him in the meat grinder if you like. Then I could be, well, you know, other Ian. No, I think we should instead. All get comfy on this blood-soaked mattress and educate him on all things involving puzzle boxes, flesh ripping, and beings that are demons to some but angels to other Justins. For we are the 80s kids, and this is our podcast. And you will detect a complete drop in the quality of dialogue at this point, for we are now off book. Uh, gentlemen, <laughs> welcome all. Uh, uh, thank you to Ian for that uh, that skit. 
and uh, I think that has set us up delightfully for a discussion of Hellraiser. Uh, not only is Ian joining us to be educated in the dark ways of the uh, the dimensions of pain and torment, but I also have not one but two Justins. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning. Hello. Uh, and- Oh, sorry. Am I, am I allowed to say hello? Or is it just Justin? Yes, who yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> We're taking well, over. we have full control <laughs> yes, now. I, I want to say, um, I've, I, I've only really seen the first two Hellraiser movies. Uh, and in researching this podcast, I'm glad that's where I stopped. But uh, I'm sure we'll get to that. Well, I think that might be a, a trifle unfair. Yeah, I mean, one and two are definitely of a quality. But then I think maybe they're a little bit overrated. But we, we shall get through that. Yeah, let us start right at the beginning. For that is a very fine place to start with Hellraiser. Back in the 80s when hair was big and so were shoulder pads and and so on and so forth, uh, as evinced by the costume design and hair design for this very movie. I've obviously got my own thoughts, but uh, everyone has seen Hellraiser. As as a Hellraiser noob, Ian, uh, you've seen this one. Why don't you give me your thoughts? Well, the first time I saw it, it was when I was a teenager, and it was it's of the age where you watch movies for the gratuitous gore and violence. So the first time I saw it, I think I was a bit put out by this quite protracted, sordid love affair thing that's going on for most of the movie until the cool monsters turn up. But you sort of review it again as an adult, especially after I met and, and got to know Claire Higgins through through the job I did with BBC. I don't like to talk about it very much, you may have noticed. So that was, that was tremendous fun. Yes, you were saying earlier it's a film with multiple protagonists, or at least yes. it changes around. And it's it's certainly true. I mean, I put it across that the, the, the heroine was a bit of a cookie cutter. I think the dad is a cookie cutter. The boyfriend was just off the shelf. Claire Higgins and her ambition to resurrect her dead lover, is she's the only character there with a, with a genuine motivation to do something kind of awesome and dark and dangerous. We kind of with the more subversive character, even though she's, you know, the literally an evil stepmother. The Cenobites themselves are more of a neutral faction in what's going on in this, in this sordid tale. My appreciation for the Cenobites is really centered around how they're kind of depicted in the first two movies until he becomes a more of a cackling goon in the third one, poor pinhead. Its effects were very satisfying, especially when, I've got his name now, the Frank. When Frank, Frank is resurrecting, that is awesome. Pre-CGI yeah. effect. Stunning. It, it's better than the werewolf transformation in Werewolf. I, uh, I thought the same. looks the same. It's, it looks it's great, doesn't stunning. it? It's stunning. Absolutely stunning. The design of the Cenobites is beautifully gruesome. It's, it's, it's beautiful in how dark it is. So there's a lot of elements there that are very satisfying. Yes, the, the family, the human half, the good guys are terribly boring. And isn't it deeply sad when we have to waste camera time focusing on them? We've, when we've got a mad murderess right now, braining guys to death in the attic so she can get off with the ghoul, the bloody ghoul that is her ex-lover. Yes, great stuff. I remember being slightly freaked out by it. It's one of those films that really gets under your skin. It's kind of disturbing, those scenes. Uh, There's a lot in it. And actually, one of the freakiest things I remember is the bit that is not supernatural at all. It's like when someone goes down the stairs and catches his hand in a nail. Yeah. That really freaked me out. There was something very real about that I, think, I was like ah i feel i can understand that pain that's horrible yeah, when i was watching it the other day i actually thought 
I bet some of these cameramen worked on Casualty because it has that air of the beginning of an episode of Casualty <laughs> where it's like you uh, wouldn't be able to guess what's going to happen at the end. Yeah, it's <laughs> But that, that, that scene in itself, that's an example of showing, because Clive Barker actually directed yeah. the first Hellraiser, and Clive Barker is an artist. And when you see that scene, there that, you can tell that there's someone with some good artistic merit behind it, because what you've got there is you've got um, the evil stepmother. She's remembering Frank, and she's remembering having sex with him. Whilst at the same time of their, their thoughts of having sex, you've got this banging of the sex. Whilst downstairs, you've got the mattress being moved and the banging of the mattress. Now, the moment that she remembers the orgasm is the moment that he catches his hand and, and cuts himself. And, of course, then he goes upstairs into the attic. The blood then drops on. So it's like a rebirth of Frank. That's the moment there. Wow. And it's nice how the two bits are intercut together. Which is great. And this is the thing. Another of Clive Barker's movies, Lord of Illusion, which he directed... I watched that movie and thought it was terrible. In fact, many people think that Lord of Illusion is a terrible movie. It's not great, is it? It's it's really Mm. bad. Because it was a Clive Barker-directed thing, at some point they thought, uh, at the time when it was a big thing to do, let's put commentary on in Clive Barker. Yeah, I'm perfectly happy to do a commentary. If you listen to the commentary of Lord of Illusion, what's really hilarious about it is that he explains all the crappy things that you're like, Oh, that's a bit underwhelming. Oh, that's not very good. And he explains why he did them, and his reasoning is sound. And you know, but it doesn't work. It just, none of it works. Even though you did everything for a reason, those reasons in the end didn't add up to a good movie. They just added up to this, which is totally underwhelming. And, you know, so, and and not, not only that, I think that Clive Barker fans generally were a bit, annoyed that the guy out of Quantum Leap was one of uh, Barker's <laughs> favourite recurring characters in that. I was like, oh, no. And yet he explains why he cast him and what he thought he would bring to the role, and it all sounds pretty reasonable. But in the end, I think that was always Clive Barker's problem. He thought everything through, but just because he thought it through didn't mean... And although his conclusions are logically fine didn't mean it actually worked. Yeah, and this is the thing. With with Clive Barker, what you'll find is that he's got a big imagination and his books, they got a large scope. And when he's, he's not the best filmmaker, look at Rawhead Rex, which was one of his first movies. Great short story, terrible movie. So when you've got a large scope, he isn't that well... Not, not got the talent, I don't think, to be able to realise it. But this is why Hellraiser works, because it's a very... You know, it's a kitchen sink drama, isn't it? It's all based around a house. So you haven't got that large scope, so you can... I, think, concentrate on detail. I mean, my problem has always been with Clive Barker's scope, that he's not obsessive enough to carry that kind of world-building off. Like, George R. R. Martin, whatever else you might say about him, he spends a hell of a lot of time thinking about Westeros, a hell of a lot of time, more time than anyone else on the face of the planet, and it, you know, it pays off for him because people are all into it. Clive Barker spends a couple of days going, that would be cool, and then just goes, I'm bored of that now, and thinks of something else instead, and it really shows, because, you know, uh, uh, we were, uh, is it we were? Great Secret, no, Great Secret Show in Everville, two novels that are supposed to be set in the same universe he never really explains it and that's because he never really gets to the end of what he was thinking about like there's bits that he knows and there's bits that he doesn't and he never thinks it through and in fact in that scene that you mentioned uh justin with the cut and the orgasm and then frank is reborn great artistically it all lines up in a row Plot logic-wise, no idea. The first time I ever watched it, I really didn't like Hellraiser when I first saw it. And ironically, I'm going to contend in the course of this podcast that it is, in fact, when 
it was all given away and people started dicking around with it, that it actually started to become coherent, which is what I love most about it, is that people trying or not really caring about it, for the most part, seems to have contributed to it actually starting to hang together a bit better. Because honestly, blood goes on the floor. I mean, symbolically, fine. But in reality, why is like his heart under the floorboards? I thought they went when the box closed and I... I was just there thinking, I don't know why this is happening. But and it really of, bugged me. There, there's a lot of unanswered questions within there, isn't it? And you, yeah. you, your brain's there to kind of sort of make it up. You could say that his essence and his spirit was there. His heart wasn't under there until the blood dropped down and then the spirit... Yeah, it. exactly. I mean, it's. It, it, I mean, yeah, you could be metaphorical about it if you wish. You've, well, you've got to let it go. I mean, one of the points in, in this movie, you see the tramp turn yeah. up? Tramp's never explained. He's a, there's a big scene where he's in the pet shop with Kirsty Cotton. Oh, yeah. But he's never really explained in it. And it, that, it's just another one of those things where yeah. your brain's just left to think about. Well, it's because Clive Barker's like, oh, because there's a go, because the tramp turns up at the end, grabs the box out of fire, turns into a dragon and flies away. Which is of like, <laughs> which, of course that was what was going to happen. But yeah, I mean, it does, yes, there is a sort of thing where it's like, um, Kirsty has nothing to do with the whole thing going on with Frank and Julia. So why is he bugging her unless he knows that she's going to end up in possession of the box, in which case, blah, blah, blah. Which is nothing to do... The Cenobites neither know nor care about that whole part of it. No. I mean, one of the interesting things about it is the way that scriptwriters subsequently come back to this idea, I had a box and it opened a gate into hell. It's like, no. Go and look up what hell is in any given mythological dictionary, and then come back to me and tell me that what that box opens is a gateway to hell, because it's not. If you look at the features of what we think of as hell versus the features of what the box opens up, they're not the same thing. It's not hell, it's somewhere else. Mm. And this is the idea. It's, it was supposed to be ultimate pleasure and ultimate pain. You get to the point and they're both indivisible. Yes. Hell wouldn't give you the ultimate pleasure. In many ways, the fact that think not everything is explained in, in the first two movies is kind of one of the delights I have about it. But there's a definite sense that there is a mythology there and enough clues that you can just about navigate your way around. Yes. Yep. In, in some ways, I'm, I'm disappointed when they feel they have to explain in thorough detail the origin of the box, Ooh. the origin yeah. of Pinhead and everything else like that. It, it, it detracts from the mystery of, of, of the monster, so to speak. <laughs> It does. Let's come to that when we get to those movies, because I've got my rants over there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, but I have that's... to say that, I mean, I think visually, I mean, I hadn't seen anything like that. And I think those Cenobites are kind of wonderful creations. Yes. I mean, I'm much more used to this stuff now. But at the time, I, w I was kind of a bit squeamish. So it was like, this is an ugly, nasty film. But there is something about it that is kind of intriguing. These creatures... These kind of weird things is like, I hadn't really seen that before. That's a, you know, most kind of horrors are, you know, they are definitely kind of formulate, they're running to either mythology that already exists or, you know, they're of a certain type. And this was kind of crazy, like weird and strange. And I, I, I was, yeah, I was looking through, you know, my hands kind of going, oh, it's horrible. But somehow it was, I kind of wanted to see more of it. It was odd it was and very, strange. You put it right, it was very original in, in its look, in the Cenobites look. They're all very different. I always love the fact that people kind of don't really look at it, but Pinhead, you know, he's got a guy. If you said, I want a guy and he's going to have nails in his face, right, would you then put them in these nice ordered lines? 
Yeah. So the fact yeah. that they've done that, there's already, you know, there's there's thought to there. Yeah, there's a great smart, great art direction. What's really interesting about it is the idea that obviously it's a tangent or a derivative of sort of fetish club mm. scenery. Yeah. But then what's interesting about it is that at that point in like 86, 87, when they were producing and making that, you kind of got away with it because it wasn't in the culture to such a great degree. And then over the next 20 years, people have become a lot more familiar with that. And the internet has brought out an explosion of people. You know, you know, you go on Facebook, there's like tattoo groups and piercing groups and all of this kind of stuff. And I was looking at it going, wow, you know, at the time they were really scary. But the more you look at Pinhead and the more the costume stays the same and the more time you have to take it in, the more you're like, that's a bit of a silly costume, really, with the, the belly button bit. And, the, uh, you know, people complained a lot, I think, about in the first film, oh, well, you hardly get to see them, really. You know, it's like, yeah, because if they over-egged it in that, you'd have got to think that Pinhead's costume was a bit silly a lot sooner than you did. Because as it was just like a quick flash and then gone, you're like, oh, all right, that was scary. As I watched all of the movies in preparation for the podcast, I was like, yeah, that is a terrible costume now that I come to think about it. Like, if you really, really stop to think about it. Or well, is it, though? I mean, I what know. we've got, we've got a I leather version of, of, like, a Pope's gown. I guess. I it's, don't think it's right. I, 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 know, really I don't like mean, them. It's kind no. of like a really kind of okay. crazy you know, kind of fucked up version of the kind of Matrix kind of look. It's kind of weird and strange. Well, actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's the other, a, yeah, the it's other a way around. It's isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, yes, okay. I know. I, maybe terrible was the wrong, um, was the wrong word. What I mean is that when you first see it and when you're, you're unfamiliar with the imagery, it kind of strikes you straight in the face. The more you look at it and the more that the society around has come to sort of uh, uh, certain levels accept that this is something that goes on in society, you get to a point where you're like, it's less, it, it loses its threat. And yeah. it's, it's weird, it's a cultural context. And here's a, there's an interesting thing as you talk about that because, well, you've got to remember Clive Barker, he was a gay man in the yeah, 80s. Oh, yeah. And it, it was it very much a, you know, the whole S&M, this, this kind of sexual undertone thing, he was bringing to the fore. He did it again when he did Nightbreed. I mean, yeah. Nightbreed is all about, you know, cultures that are ignored by the main of society. And it really is a massive gay metaphor throughout the whole book. Yeah. And it's just interesting that Hellraiser was the same, but more on the S&M side of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, the sort of the idea of the cookie cutter people in it, they're all the straights. It's like the husband. And what's really interesting, there was one point where they have a, like a dinner party. And in that scene, what I realized was there's nothing normal. Well, obviously, there's a dead guy in the attic making a bunch of noise and, and uh, it's making a, uh, Julia a bit jumpy because she knows what's going on. But it somehow demonstrates during that scene, I think it's probably a, a, a sort of everything, the lighting, which is obviously partly because it was kind of a cheap movie, but also the way that it's set up and the way that people talk and the way that the, the whole thing is put together is this thing of you're all playing at being adults. You're not really all these like together people who are very cosmopolitan and worldly. And one of the ways that demonstrates that is by making all the straight people very cookie cutter. And then you've got Frank in the shadows and like he's the one who went all over the world and got this weird puzzle box off this strange Chinese guy in this like uh, street market in some he's the worldly one and look what happened to him is worldly something you should really aspire to that's it's their questions and and things like that so yeah I mean there's a lot in 
the movie to ask about. And yeah, I mean, I guess, well, you know this, Ian, we like a mythology. Oh, yes. And, and when you have to fill in so much of it for yourself, I mean, it, it's weird because what I'm going to contend as we go along here is that where are certain things like Star Trek, for example, get bound up in their own canon till the point where the characters can't actually move or breathe anymore. In this case, it was so messy that the more restrictions you put on the mythology, the better it becomes in retrospect. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. If we weave that into it, then that'll work and so on and so forth, as we shall see as we go on. Anything else about Hellraiser before we kind of take... I mean, thankfully, Hellraiser 2 is a continuity, so... Just one thing, really. We touched on the Cenobites and how they are and and how they look. But the main thing, really, is is Pinhead himself. I mean, obviously not called Pinhead, called lead Cenobite in the first movie. Fans called him Pinhead by the end for the second one. But it's more what he is and who he is. So we're in the realm of, you know, we're in the 80s. We're in Freddy Krueger land right now. And yet what we've got here with Pinhead is we've got this very gothic almost. He speaks like like Dracula from the Bram Stoker novel. Mm. He doesn't say very much, but what he does, it's quite poetic and dark mm. is how he does it. And I think that's one of the things that, that made him stand out. The particular scene was when Kirsty Cotton was in the hospital. And then she opens up the box and then the Cenobites come in. I mean, these wondrous lines that he's coming out with. Until late, very much later on, they try and keep something of that most of the time. Like, whoever's writing a script that ends up being a Hellraiser script, and of course, the later scripts have to be altered to put Pinhead into them. And those writers are always like, well, we have to stick with that way that he speaks, until you get to a point where you're like, you're wondering whether the lines are actually dialogue, or whether, in fact, it's like a visual metaphor that it's like something you hear in your head, but the guy doesn't actually say anything. I mean, it's a real work of acting. Obviously, it's the thing that often gets lampooned when Hellraiser gets lampooned, is that whole manner of speaking. But his voice as well. I mean, Doug Bradley's voice in that, it just sounds great, that deep, booming resonance. And the fact that he's intelligent, you can bargain with him, you can reason with him, and he's not running around. He only ever goes into a walk. Yeah. You know, he's got that regal sense to him. Yeah, he's uh, he's the ringmaster of the whole thing, rather than being the rather than being a sort of a monster. Yeah. which And then the thing about it is that, that because of the mess, in a way, of how the sequels come out, he has moments where he be- almost becomes the comedy Freddy Krueger villain. Yeah. But then because the scripts are all, like, mashed together from dozens of different drafts, it's only ever moments, and it always comes come back as if the script exists in a separate space to the people who are creating the movie, which is kind of weird. <laughs> hey, meta. Few facts, <clears throat> I suppose. I'm going to deploy them now because I've not much to say else later as we as we progress. <laughs> I, I do know that they they commissioned the script for Hellraiser two uh, pretty much as soon as the film went out. They didn't really have time to gauge what. Was going to be pop. It was a it was a popular film, but they didn't know why it was popular. And of course, as we say, the film has many protagonists. So, from what I understand, the initial idea was that the sort of loose trilogy they were thinking of making was it was going to be Julia who was going to be the central villainess throughout. And indeed, at the end of Hellraiser Two, it was going to be Julia who bursts through the bloody mattress at the end and is now the queen of hell. And that was going to be the setup for the third movie. Of course, it, the fans had all latched on to the Cenobites. So there was a bit of a rewrite. When the Cenobites get killed off in Hellraiser 2, that was it. They were kind of explained and killed off. 
and it was going to clear the way for uh, the Julia showdown in the third film. So obviously there was there was a bit of a rewrite, especially at the end when the, instead we have the pillar emerging through the bed with all the yeah. Cenobites embedded in it to keep them all alive for the next film. There's one factoid. Also, yeah, mythology messed up here. How many lament configurations are in this film? Oh, is that ever going to be accounted for? Oh, was that in Hellraiser 2? Yeah. Now, this this is a major plot hole, which I didn't really notice until even when I rewatched Hellraiser 2 this week. It was only a few days later I was thinking about it. Now, Dr. Chenar's got three boxes, right, all in glass cases, which I get because he's got them and he's not sure which one's the right one and he's been collecting them. But bearing in mind that this has happened almost directly after the first one because Kirsty Cotton's in hospital, he must have picked up the real box only the night before. Right. No, yes. there's, there's several boxes. At the end, you can see lots of lunatic asylum patients all with their own puzzle box trying to solve it. He has three... I, yeah, but I figured that... Well, my my understanding was that these were ones that he collected and he wasn't sure which one was the real one. And it was only when going through and getting the notes and stuff that he did from Kirsty he was able to pick out which was the right one. I'm filling in blanks here, <laughs> but this is how I kind of went. And all the guys in the hospital doing the boxes, well, that was just... You know, hell. It looked cool. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. My my other factoid here, and this is actually someone else's opinion. Who I'm going to steal. I posit a theory: the Cenobites come from inside our us, inside our own brain, because it, it's a it's a psychologist who is the principal kind of villain, I suppose, of this yeah. second movie. And of course, he's mm-hmm. a absolute bastard psychologist who tortures people in his dungeons to create new maddening realities of hell. And when we go inside hell, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of metaphor for the brain. It's like labyrinth. It's like a brain. You know, it's full of all suppressed sexual desires that are within there. There's a giant puzzle box in the sky that you can't touch. In many ways, it was like saying the hell is just, it's a subconscious realm of humanity and is the, is the human brain itself, which is a source of madness, perversion and darkness from which the Cenobites come from. So I, I throw that out there for digestion. <laughs> Oh, I quite like that. I yeah, like yeah. That well, I think we're, we're, what you've accurately put your finger on there is that Hellraiser 2 is kind of like a happy accident in that it is the most 80s rock video of the <laughs> entire series, I think. Oh, yeah, well, one of the things that I should pick up here that really only starts to become very obvious later on is that, oddly, in all the films, there is an obsession with outdated technology. In every film, I'm like, why are they using that? That's like an old thing that people don't use anymore. And I don't, I think it's like an accident, but in every film at some point, someone <laughs> uses some piece of technology that you're like, well, this is 1986. Why are they doing that? Like, like reel to reel tape recorders or like in the later films, you've got people with these brick phones and you're like, but this is like 2004. Nobody yeah. has phones like that anymore. <laughs> and it's like, and, and even in the, the crappy ninth one that we will barely speak about at the end, there's a bit where a guy's using like a handy cam that seems to take digital tape and you're like this was made in 2011 nobody uses tape anymore <laughs> yeah. like, and, and every film there's something like that i just thought i'd, I'd, I'd brush past that <laughs> on the way through but yeah i remember seeing hellraiser 2 at the time you know i hadn't really been that impressed with hellraiser i was a lot more impressed with hellraiser 2 but i had to agree it made no freaking sense whatsoever the more you see it you go well you have to like it um and weirdly it kind of makes more sense when you get later on and they've started retrofitting other metaphysical ideas into the into the, the thing because 
those, then that kind of explains certain reasons why it doesn't make any sense. The other thing that uh, springs to mind uh, for discussion by everyone is that I hadn't realised to what extent Silent Hill drew from, which is weird because it kind of goes the other way later, Hellraiser 2 particularly is basically there's whole sequences was like oh yeah silent hill guys they obviously watched this there's a hospital there's an elevator there's someone coming down and there's the this the pipes and the sound of banging against pipes and people screaming in and in, in kind of lunatic asylum cells and that's really not the way that that's all assembled together is it the pitch perfect for hospital scenes in Silent Hill games. And it's like, well, this is, before, you know, 10 years before Silent Hill. So although Silent Hill had all these references to, oh, we're doing like Stephen King, Dean Arcoon, all this kind of stuff, there's no way that Hellraiser was not part of that whole Silent Hill. I mean, the Cenobite, not the Cenobites themselves, but when they start to do Cenobite derivative monsters are pretty much... Silent Hill monsters. I mean, they're almost exactly identical. And of course, Pinhead and Pyramid Head, they're very similar kind of figures, except one's a priest and the other's more of a butcher with a coal scuttle on his head. But they have that same, they walk, they're deliberate, they don't, they don't need to rush because they're coming for you. They're essentially sort of quite equivalent. I imagine you've got a few words on, on Hellraiser 2, just yeah, to be it's actually crazy, visual. but I, I saw this so more, far more recent when I say developed a kind of a stomach to protect myself from, from the gore and stuff. So yeah, maybe, maybe four or five years ago. Uh, yeah, it is mad and crazy and a kind of a really twisted kind of version of Labyrinth or something. I kind I do kind of enjoy it actually. Again, unsettling. And again, it's weird because it's, so I'm, I'm assuming it was made over here. Um, yes. but pretending to be America. So already it's kind of a bit weird. Although, and something... yeah, well, that is very weird because people say, well, you know, the first one is in London because they make yeah. a, a point of saying we're in London. And then the second one could also be in yeah. London, but for one shot with an American star cop with a gun in the house. Like the rest of it, there's no particular reason why it has to be no. American. So I remember watching going, this is kind of jarring. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, it just kind of gets weirder. And yeah, I didn't really, I couldn't really make any sense of it. But it was kind of wonderful in a kind of weird, kind of grotesque manner. I just kind of sat there going, okay, I'll just watch this kind of thing because it's just odd and peculiar and kind of, yeah, a really twisted kind of Alice in Wonderland kind of odd, strange fantasy thing. Uh, quite a departure from the first one which is kind of felt more raw and kind of nasty. This is just kind of, you say, batshit crazy. Um, and and it, it was nice that the psychologist who sort of, you see the psychologist become a Cenobite, you see briefly uh, Pinhead mm. before he was a Cenobite mm. becoming a Cenobite. So you understand that Cenobites are made out of humans. Well, this is then the key, isn't it, for later on films, mm. that we, can, we don't just have to rely on these four characters. We can throw the imagination out to make more. Yes, exactly. So, um, but he, the psychologist becomes that cackling Freddy Krueger star. He's the one that gets all the quips during the movie as he lits in and does all the sort of stuff with the tentacles and, and what have you. And you're like, okay, it uh, is, it that's is a, cool. I love the line, to think I hesitated. 
is yeah. wonderful. <laughs> yep, there's. Uh, I'm surprised that they actually managed to get all of that hell scenery in because, like, he must have been chewing quite a lot. <laughs> Imagine how amazing it would have been if he hadn't eaten half of the shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, and then unfortunately, poor old Leviathan. Eh? I mean, uh, it just goes to show that people in general really can't respond to an overlord of hell that is a gigantic, you know, tetrahedron rotating in the sky. Mm. Who'd have thought? Uh, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. It's something with shadows. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, awful, wasn't it? <laughs> well, no, it's not. It's not awful. It's like it's really difficult. It's um, of course there's the famous story about uh, Blade, where at the end of the first Blade movie, Stephen Dorff was supposed in the script, original script, it said he does the magic ritual and then he turns into a gigantic column of blood, eternally rushing upwards. And they actually filmed it, and there are actually like half composited CG bits where his like face pops out of this huge column of blood, and Wesley Snipes is bouncing all over the room, swiping at this like gigantic CG column of blood <laughs> with a sword. And at the time, the guy Norrington kind of went that's not gonna fly and so they just had him have red contact lenses and they actually had a fight which worked a lot better uh, but they said yeah people are really bad at responding to threats that are abstract yeah. they can't handle it like psychologically just looks silly so yeah i mean this is a this is a direction in the blade case from the same guy who bought us league of extraordinary gentlemen mm. so something happened in between leviathan's a cool idea but unfortunately I, I think that the generally speaking, they just went. Nobody because really understands what that so is. Because the rest of it's so kind of visceral and feels kind of real because it's all physical effects and kind of that is what you take as threat and that's what you concentrate on. Just a bit of you know kind of early effects yeah. or we're just floating around. Yeah, there's no real and it's so like you say it's so abstract and big and doesn't really interact at all. The Leviathan will require more psychology. It, it? Yeah, it, I think if it was done now, I think you could do all kind of things. Uh, yeah, it was kind of just background didn't really affect me but but even though we've we've actually been to hell we've been down the other side of that corridor in a hellraiser 2 you come away with a sense that we've only seen a bit of hell that's well yeah this is the thing that i that i really don't like in this is that you've shown you hell well i like it when it's more in your head and you've got these little bits and pieces and you're going that's hell it's a big labyrinth and you go into rooms and people's hell is they're sat in a room with women writhing around in blood-soaked sheets. It, it takes away the imagination of really what the whole thing is. Yeah, but the whole point is it's not really hell for a start. It's labyrinth. It's um, Leviathan's domain. Of course, Leviathan gets a bit baked at the end. I mean, it just blows up or whatever. And we never go back. So, so it turns, turns into the cube. Yeah, something happens to it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot of in all the films. And then we wave our hands and don't worry. We're not going to worry about that anymore, audience. And neither are you. Wink. And that's it. You know, that's, that's one of the, the, the major cards that they always play. And it's like, let's just not think about that anymore and move hey, on. Hey, more Cenobites. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I mean, when I was watching it, I think actually one of the most horrific scenes in it wasn't with the Cenobites. It was at the start when you've got Dr. Channard taking the mental patient, sticking him on the mattress and giving him the razor. Yeah. Now, originally when that came out, that was cut. That scene, it was shown, but it was, it was, yeah. it was sliced down. Uh, that was, it was accidentally shown uncut on, um, 
on terrestrial TV. I can't remember if it was BBC Two or Channel Four in, in the eighties, and they got told off for it. They didn't yeah. realise. But I went back and rewatched the Uncut Version, which I'd never seen before this week, and it's really dark. You get to see a lot of a lot of um, razor blades slicing into maggot-infested skin. Mm. Yeah, um, and and you just sit there and look at it, and even now it feels nasty. Yeah, oh no, totally. Well, it's because it's the, it's the exploitation. It's like you don't know. I mean, that's the thing that kind of you can take away. If we're going to take things away and read into things here, uh, which we are, because we have to, because the films kind of force us to, you say, well, Leviathan's domain, he's nowhere near there. Wherever he is, that's somewhere else. And that's what tells you that there's more to this whole business of living. I mean, this is one of the things that I really like about it is that it really uh, takes to task very simplistic ideas of, you know, oh, there's a heaven, there's a hell, and there's a God, and there's a devil. It's like, yeah, what if it's none of that? What if there's, like, loads of different random metaphysical crap that happens, some of which we can't even conceptualise or imagine? And whenever you put that, I mean, the fact is, there's not precious few movies that even try to talk about that. And for someone to do that is kind of out there and and really worthwhile um, and that's another reason why continuing on the more complicated that it becomes because people are now throwing even more crazy metaphysical ideas and it actually improves and strengthens the central core of it because it starts to winnow out all the ideas that don't go anywhere and say well the key features are these this is what happens and then the rest of it is just other stuff that happens to be happening today uh, on which subject let us move on to hell on earth this is the point where things could have gone really really bad but thankfully and again this is what i'm saying thankfully studio interference in this case meant that it didn't because if it had continued if somebody had been given ownership of the hellraiser franchise at hellraiser 3 and they continued to do what they did in hellraiser 3 with it Oh, well, that universe I don't want to live in. But Hellraiser 3 was in a way, it's kind of your cheap and obvious Hellraiser sequel. Yeah. Well, this is your, this is your popcorn movie. This is, it's the one that's got the biggest budget in the franchise so far. They've been making money. Let's go and get one that's going to put buns on seats in the cinema. And this to me is the moment where Pinhead starts becoming that Freddy Krueger character. He sits there and does the whole Jesus Christ mockery thing and, you know, he's kind of doing all this laughing. You shouldn't be laughing. No. I'm just going to read this line out here, and it's, it's, it's Bradley in an interview relaying a conversation he had with Barker. Uh, and Barker told him to think of Pinhead as a cross between an administrator and a surgeon who's responsible for running a hospital where there are no wards, only operating theatres. Uh, as well as being the man who wills the knife, he's the man who keeps the timetable going. Uh, and that is neatly sums up for me what Pinhead hid. He's in some ways a functionary. He's doing his job. In Hellraiser 2, the mute girl summons. He comes out and goes, it's not hands that summon us. It is desire. You know, he's quite a job's worth about who he takes down to hell. And in this third movie where he's supposedly stripped off his humanity, you'd think that would make him more detached or something but no he's he becomes like like you say he becomes the freddy cougar he becomes pantomime he becomes cackling a, a villain who wants to fill the world full of hell and cenobites he's going off the reservation here i mean and that whole thing i mean it's a, it's a it's a famous scene i suppose where he's dicking around in the church and taking and you know sticking nails in his hands and things like that 
And it's just like, what are you doing? Yeah. yeah. It, it also, it contrasts him into the sort of Judeo-Christian good versus evil, uh, hell mythology, which, uh, which, which like, I don't think, it's, I think it's the Americanization of him. He's just an import. He's an import monster. And this is his monster movie. And here's good versus evil. And humanity is good in this movie. It's his human side of, of Pinhead that wants to fight back against the evil demon who wants to destroy everything. And it's kind of against the morality that was set up in the first two movies, where, the, where we know humans have an, a dark undercurrent within them. Humanity isn't pure. Humanity is darkness. This is where the Cenobites come from. And it, all of a sudden we have this kind of demons from outside trying to impact into, into our good human world. I was like, that's not what Hellraiser really is about. Maybe the whole cackling thing which is kind of an aberration he went through whilst he was separated from his human soul and now he's kind of got his soul back again he, that's why he settles down again thereafter it's what i've kind of told myself <laughs> maybe i mean i find i found the script in itself again you know you mentioned in hellraiser 2 is opening line is it's not hands that call us it is desire that's a great line, right? And Hellraiser 3, what do we get? There is a song at the centre of the universe, and it sounds like razors through flesh. I mean, that's not great, is it? That's that's no six-form poetry. One of the things, one of the things that uh, should we should loud about Hellraiser 3, bearing in mind the fact that it. I mean, the thing about it is, you can easily tell, yeah, that uh, Hellraiser 3 is a movie that was partially made to sell a soundtrack. It's like, oh, yeah, of course the guy owns a nightclub because then we can have loads of nightclub scenes <laughs> yeah. where we're playing all the latest rock hits of the history. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so we're talking about a film that was partially created in order to sell a bunch of rock tracks, yeah? But nevertheless, despite that, the people who are working on it who may have had some lingering regard for the previous things that had come before... Let's not forget that the heroine of this is fairly capable. I mean, there's two female characters in there. And the third film, for all of its shortcomings, passes the Bechdel test like nothing. Though her and the, the girl who's like a transient, who she takes into her home and, and helps out, their relationship, when she betrays him, is because the woman gets another job. It's nothing to do with men. These two women don't have a relationship that's not about men. It's about mm. their friends and then she said, and someone rings up and goes, oh, you've got that job in another city. And then she runs off because she believes that this person's going to abandon her. And it's nothing to, I mean, you know, from a feminist point of view, that through line of the main character who doesn't really bother with men throughout the whole thing and that the whole thing is bigger than that is really actually quite good. It's just the actual main part that's not very good where it takes all <laughs> the interesting stuff, uh, metaphysical stuff from the other movies and it kind of goes yeah, yeah, let's forget about that. Let's just turn him into Freddy Krueger, nightclub full of hooks flying through the air uh, and, and then really, you know, the original Cenobites are like, oh, I've got like a, a curved um, needle going through my cheeks or like I haven't got any eyes and I've got big chattering teeth or all of this stuff and this guy's like i've got a drill in my head yeah. i've got some cds in my i've head. got a camera and... that, that shoots explosive bolts <laughs> i mean that that was a bit the main scene these cenobites that get created if you if you just step back and look at the movie they last for 10 minutes they walk around they chase the female character joey uh, right up until the point where she gets the box she presses the box and they zap and they die yeah. they don't actually do anything really 
No, no, exactly. I mean, it is all about sort of being a big sort of circus spectacle. I mean, to give a, another uh, perspective on the whole, um, oh, but now Pin, when Pinhead gets his humanity taken away, he turns into Freddy Krueger thing. The way that you could look at it is if indeed, as we say, that the second film is all about his human psychology and therefore hell doesn't really exist and so on and so forth and, and what have you, then you can say, well, when you strip, when they, they're talking about it in very simplistic terms, but when you strip all the nasty bits of, of Pinhead's human counterpart out of him, what that Pinhead is is kind of like a big nasty ball of pure PTSD from that guy. That's why the guy could operate as a human being and deliver, you know, sage advice about how to fight him and talk about the nature of it. Because what's actually been stripped out is that they're both a human version. It's just that one's all the nasty stuff that's left behind after you've been through an incredibly traumatic experience, that somewhere this human guy was sat in Pinhead's head watching all this flesh getting flayed and administrating over this circus of horrors. And there's that part of him that's just completely lost it because of that. And then there's the other part that's all of his human memories and his identity outside of that traumatic experience. And that's what gets split apart. So that might make people feel a bit better about the fact that he's some gurning, goonish, uh, <laughs> evil thing. Yeah, uh, I like that. Yeah, so um, we're going to move on in a second to uh, an Alan Smithy movie. Um, now, one of the things I was saying to Justin, because you watched Bloodlines this morning. I didn't did, Justin? I did. Maybe I... as a fresh and first view, <laughs> you could be the first to talk. You haven't even seen this, have you, Ian? No, but I, I looked it up on YouTube. And okay, read, read the write-up. So I'm familiar um, with it. I have opinions on it. Yes. So, um, yeah, I had a similar experience with Fire Walk With Me, that excellent, uh, obviously, oh, companion yeah. piece to Twin Peaks that clearly explains everything. No. Fire um, Walk With Me, one of my favourite horror movies of all time. Um, <laughs> just saying. Okay. Uh, so, so you, you go, oh, okay, this is, a, this is an origin story. We're going to get all the... I'm going to understand everything by the end of this. And I'm just watching it going... What the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, so basically every, I think, every Hellraiser up to this point, I haven't seen the third one, um, is just like, I don't know what's going on. But this one is losing a lot of that. There was still a lot of wonderment in the in the, in the the first two, and therefore I would watch them kind of and through all the kind of stuff's going on. But this one just kind of went, well, I, I applaud all the scope. Um, you know, it's telling a big story, but... Uh, it just doesn't hang together. It's the main guy is really dull and it doesn't make any sense. I'm trying to work it out what's going on. And in the end, you kind of go, okay, so all of this, like 200 years, all of this ends with the destruction of Pinhead, but just, just Pinhead. So presumably there's still this hellish realm. There's still Cenobites. So what has actually that done? Um, not really anything. So I'd say, yeah, I, surely my first thought was like, if you're going to tell this big grandiose story that is spanning all this time and the construction of the box and then the final, surely it would all be about like destroying the box and the link to it so that forever sealed, that would be the big lightness coming to darkness, the, you know, hell or whatever, whatever dimension you're going into is vanquished and no more will this box be open. But it wasn't about any of that. Um, it seemed like three films, like, really bluntly joined together. Like, someone wanted to make a sci-fi thing with weird demons. Um, someone wanted to tell a kind of 18th century 
kind of Marcassard kind of horrific kind of thing. And someone wanted to make a really dull thing about a guy, an architect, who for some reason, why did he make a big... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's it's your it's your good old fashioned Christmas Carol structure of past, present, future, isn't it? Yeah, it's a yeah, epic it story. Here's another observation of the madness that goes on in this film. The middle section. Okay, so the two demons, of which Pinhead is just one, want the architect to complete his work. He is working to complete his work. They're egging mm. him on to do something he is already doing. Mm. And then they rush him and he screws it up. Mm. Great plan there, Pinhead. (laughs) I don't believe that there was ever a story and script for this movie that was terribly... I mean, it seems quite deliberate, like, Le Marchand makes the box, and then in the future, his descendant closes the gate to hell, and that was always the concept, and so on and so forth, and and they had the budget that they had in there. What, it really does bait my noodle that this ended up being an Alan Smithy movie, because what person okay. is really going to be like, oh, here I am, I have made this gorgeous movie about space demons and a guy who makes a box which is kind of unspectacular, and now they've just ruined it with let, all let of me, this. I know a yeah. little bit of the background. Maybe, maybe other Justin knows some of this background too. Uh, as I understand it, it was the script was written and the and the uh, director was on board for it. The budget was as much as they wanted to, so they were cutting scenes as they were going, and they were quite upfront from from the onset, telling the the executives, Pinhead isn't going to turn up for forty minutes. And uh, they were like, okay, that's fine. And, of course, they freaked out that Pinhead wasn't in it for 40 minutes as soon as they saw it. So they wanted Pinhead shunted in earlier in the film. And other rewrites were put in as well. So this is rewrites on top of the script. We're just already having bits that he wanted to have in there cut. And so I think it was the jiggly-pokery from above meddling with his story that made him go, right, screw this. I'm walking out. And they drafted in somebody else to finish it off. Yeah, it was a, it was very much like that. It was... Not a particularly well-constructed movie. Yeah. Um, and that's why the result looks as bad as it, as it does. I mean, I'd like to go back and see what an original script would have looked like from it. I've never read that. But, I mean, the movie was terrible, wasn't it? To start with, you've lost the Hellraiser theme. Hmm. The Hellraiser theme is actually a good theme. And then all of a sudden you get something that sounds a bit like 2001 because we're in space. <laughs> which, which, you know, already starts... Getting, getting problems. Um, and then as you run through it all, you've got, you, the problem with this movie, you've over explained stuff. You know, part of the mythology what you've got with the Hellraiser movies is bits of it aren't quite explained. Where did the box come from? The fact that we got a date of when the box first appeared is just as bad as the fact that we discovered when Pinhead was a World War One officer. And so he's only been, he's been around for less than a hundred years by the time the first Hellraiser's been up. You don't want that. You want a Hellraiser, uh, you want Pinhead to be around the Cenobites, ageless demons that have been around for, for umpteen, you know, centuries. To, as to, it were. To, be, to be fair, it was always the conception that Pinhead would have once have been human. And that even in the first Hellraiser movie, that was kind of a background note. I appreciate things have been overexplained. And once that's done, the mystery is gone. I, I totally agree with you on that mm. point, however. But it was always the case. And he is the Satan. He's not the leader of hell. And he, he's just the leader of Cenobites. And, and Bradley, in interviewing, has been saying, well, he's just kind of the leader of the current batch of Cenobites. Maybe there were yeah. other leaders before him. Maybe he was merely a servant of another Cenobite to begin with and has worked his way up Sauron-like to become the Dark Lord. 
But yes, you know, maybe his reign ends in the year 2122, and some other Cenobite leader takes over after that. Who can say? I love the, f- I love the fact that this box, you know, the whole point is it's going around, it's, it's being traded on the black market. There's this, you know, people that are seeking pleasure, they find out about it through whispers on the wind and off they go looking for it. But, you know, we, we get it dated. We get it dated yeah. for a couple of centuries and, old, and it's... Oh. And try reconciling that now with having lots of lament configurations in the second movie. I don't. I, mean, I don't really mind all of the things, all of the above, uh, for several reasons. One, I don't mind that uh, Pinhead is his World War One officer because, in a way, that makes it even weirder. Because you're like, so there's this guy in the trenches, and then he somehow picks up this box somewhere, and then he opens it, and then he becomes like this weird monk thing, and in 90 years he just, and then he loses all his humanity, and then the PTSD incident. I mean, that's one of the things. I think that if you do go one, two, four, three makes four slightly better because it's like then it becomes even more bonkers. You're like. What? Hang on. Wait. In the first film, you said this. I mean, the fact is that already in four four movies, four completely different versions of the truth. Nobody knows what reality is, and therefore everything is suspect. And this idea of the kind of inventor-style Leonardo da Vinci character who who is uh, blessed with some kind of uh, perverse superpower in engineering and stuff, that's all, all good pot-boilery stuff. I mean, yeah, Le Marchand isn't that because he's completely pathetic. I mean, he's a, a cipher of a character <laughs> who happens to have a few nimble fingers. If it was this idea, I mean, if you'd flash back, it wouldn't have mattered that it was like, what, 17, 23 or whatever, and that he's in France and that he's building this box if he was surrounded by bizarre things and and like or if you'd like seen his workshop and there's like a working helicopter and they've made this really clear no he's like leonardo da vinci idea but he said well he's just a family guy who happens to know how to draw squiggles that turn into portals into hell and that's the worst bit is the bit where he goes well i designed the machine that opened the gate now i will design the one that consigns it to hell and he just does a big loop on a piece of paper and you're like that's just what that's just like your kid's crayon picture that you put on the fridge. That's ridiculous. What the hell is that? It's like, no, it's okay. We can make this with stable lasers. I mean, you have all the exposition. And that's, in a way, one of the things that makes this film gets, that lets this film get away with some of the worst bits is the fact that then you have bits with spaceships flying about and you're like, Okay, this isn't really sitting. This isn't really sitting. But then the fact that it's not sitting is like every film has something in it that is like, this isn't really sitting. And that's, and when you put them all together, your brain just gives up and allows all of it. And if you allow all of everything that happens in all the movies you've seen so far, you are in one crazy place. (laughs) So that's fine. I'm quite happy with that. To paint a bit more onto the mythology as well, we see an earlier version of the demon. She's like, she, she's blood and she fills up some skinned flesh and there she is and of course Angelique and she meets Pinhead as well and there's kind of a grudging kind of equality between the two of them and there is that line he gives about you know hell has changed you know when he's talking to her about the modern era and of course we've seen hell and so it makes you wonder if hell has changed because of modernity and industrialization and so Pinhead is the demon of the World War One factory of carnage that industrialization brought ah. has upscaled from the temptress that was of the previous incarnations of hell that existed before 
Ooh, wow, there well, we go. I guess you need to start, yeah, obviously it helps if you imagine when you can fill in the gaps probably better than their writers can. <laughs> <'cause>, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, in a way, in a way, it's a good job that their writers are more imaginative because if you did stitch it all together properly, like someone sat there like we, I mean, yeah, this is a weird thing. If you and I, Ian, had been given Hellraiser 1 and 2 and said, well, tangentially go off this, and go forward from here, we would have done our usual thing, sat around, working out all the edges, uh, going through all the inconsistencies, sealing all the plot And I contend that would actually have made things worse, <laughs> not better. Because actually what's making this series now start to hang together is the fact that none of it hangs together at all, and it's all completely random and tangential. Something that is going to be front and centre when the rights go to Miramax, because somebody finds it in a bin and goes, do we want the rights to this? Can we make any money off selling the rights to this? The Weinsteins go, we'll give you 200 quid and a pass to our next premiere. All right, then have that. And then they sell it. And it's like, that just shows, I mean, in a way, the fact that the, the rights that were not seen as valuable and that they just got sold to Miramax. And Miramax meant, do we actually want to make a Hellraiser sequel? I'm not sure that we do, but we've got this script over here that's a little bit Hellraiser-y. Let's go with that. Um, and this is actually, number five, Inferno, is one of my favourite movies in the franchise I, I for agree. this reason. I agree with you. I will say, this is the moment, though, where it becomes Pinhead Presents. Yes. From here on in, we don't have a Hellraiser movie, do we? Uh, not not for a while, no. And then when we do get one, we wondered why we wanted one in the first place. <laughs> we'll get around to that. But no, I agree. Um, Inferno, I was pleasantly surprised when I rewatched it. I'd forgotten how good it was. You've got a very different tangent, haven't you? You've got this kind of yeah. film noir character going along. He's not particularly likeable. Right near the start, he, he justifies why he's sleeping with prostitutes behind his wife's back, which... It was quite quite interesting, really. Well, what's really interesting about that? I've watched this film now about four times, and I didn't realise. But the way that it builds it up is actually quite clever because you see a man—he's an intellectual man. He's playing chess with a professor. He's always liked puzzles and close-up magic. Then it turns out he's a cop. He's in the dark side, but then he pockets some evidence. He's taking money out of a dead man's wallet. That's not very ethical, but he's clever. He's, we know this from the first scene. He's clever and he's a cop. So maybe he's the kind of maverick kind of cop who gets the job. Oh, and then he goes home and look at his beautiful wife and he really, he really loves his daughter and he goes and he puts his hand and you're like, okay, so maybe he's on the take, but overall he's enough. What the hell is he doing? He's sleeping with hookers. Like, I'm going out for a bit here. Hey, coke and horse. And you're like, and then, it's just the way that it's like... What a stage, guy. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. But the point is, it's like, well, that's kind of... You've kind of mixed up Bad Lieutenant and a normal cop movie mm. in this film, and it's got nothing to do with Hellraiser. And this is the thing. Hellraiser is often at its best when it's got nothing to do with Hellraiser. Five actually ties together with one quite nicely, because if you think about Hellraiser 1 being Pinhead Presents... Frank and Julia and their illicit affair. And this time it happens to be Frank that's got his hold on the wacky box and so on and so forth. Suddenly all of that stuff makes sense because now none of it makes sense because all it is is Pinhead turns up. When you've gone down that road far enough, 
hello, I'm Pinhead, and here come the hooks, and let's go. Um, and one of the things I like about it is that up until this point, people open the box, and the chains come out of the wall, and, you know, there's rending and slicing, and uh, and then a few poetic lines, in, you know, at the best le- level that the writer could do for that particular episode. But you don't really know what happens, whereas this is the first time you get to see, no, you know, like after the bit with the hooks, or before, or, you know, how about if time just actually doesn't make any sense in this realm? How about if this is what you psychologically see happening to you while you're there? For the first time, you get an idea that what we saw in number one is Frank gets uh, full of fish hooks and then gets torn apart, and then he's under the floorboards and there's blood, and then he's on the, you know, he says, I'm on the run from the Cenobites. You don't really know, well, what, where was he running from and where was he running to? Well, if you picture the point between when he gets ripped apart in the first bit and then the point where he comes back from under the floorboards and being going through loops of his own life in which everything goes wrong and then he wakes up at the same point and then Pinhead lets him go a little bit forward or it sends him back way further and every time it all just turns to crap and everything he cares about gets rendered in front of his face and he can never stop it and then he he finds a way out now suddenly you're like oh i get this guy now but you only get it explained in the fifth movie which is a script which is nothing to do with hellraiser that's been adapted to have pinhead so it's like (laughs) what i mean how do they get to there that's what's that's what gets me about that is just like for the first time you're like oh okay so that's how it feels in your head you know, all the Jacob's Ladder stuff, yeah. where you're the real world, and then suddenly Cenobites or weird things, or and then things start... What's really nice is the way that rationality ebbs and flows, and that the character starts to make sense of things, or thinks he's back on an even keel, or thinks that he's going to be able to get past these episodes... I have to say the worst part, the part where all of this experimentation really didn't pay off, is the bit where the uh, gay karate cowboys kick the crap out of him in the woods. Yes. <laughs> I was watching yeah. that. I was like, no, that, we could have done without that scene. <laughs> but other than that, you know, they're going well. You know, the, the weird sort of paedophilic ice cream truck guy getting the skin flayed off his back that all works and and then and the the way that it's like no the fingers in the till and everyone's like how did you know that yeah. and you realize at the end yeah you've been set up i mean that's what's crazy it's like oh my god hell set me up to look like a murderer wait a second am i dead what's going i mean how confused must this guy be because then he's like oh i'm going to jail or he's going to face it and then he's sent back on a loop to the beginning it's just like yeah, you can see how insanity would ensue pretty quickly in that yeah. and, and and again, I, in some ways, these later films, because they're, they're done trying to explain mythology to us, they're just kind of taking Pinhead for what he actually is. He's a functionary of hell who does a job. Yes. Uh, I think this is, this is so much better, even though it is Pinhead Presents, you're quite right. It's so much more truer to the core mythology that I became fascinated with. And yeah. you liken Pinhead to Pyramid Head, from Silent Hill 2. It's very apt because Pyramid Head is a force of justice and retribution as he goes through hell as well. He's punishing these sinners that are trapped there. And this is what he's doing throughout this movie. I think the next, well, the, you know, all the way through to Hell World, isn't it? He, he is, he's getting a dude in his sights and he is giving him a damn good punishing. 
Although in seven, it's a different kind of angle on it, which again is another, I mean, it's weird. It's almost like a reverse of the old Star Trek phenomenon, except that there's a, a, an unusual blip in that one and two are okay. Three's pretty bad. Four's interesting, but just no. But then five and seven are okay. It's always like you're always more likely to hit a duffer on the even numbers, even though two's okay. Eight we'll get on to. Um, and of course the rule is completely broken by number nine, which, um, but yeah, I mean, it, when you get into six, I mean, it's worth kind of conflating the two because six is essentially that I think maybe they had some happy success with number five and then when, oh, they went, oh, well, that was unexpected. And then six is kind of a retread, even though it's apparently got Ashley in it, which it doesn't really. But um, even though that is the case, it's basically a, a retread. I mean, you know, if, if you look at all the crazy crap that happens to the guy in five, the crazy crap that happens to the guy in six is nowhere nearly as crazy. In fact, it's a far lot crappier. It's like a watered-down version. It is. It? it is very much that. And I think they, what's unfortunate about that is that I think they felt at liberty to water it down like that because, oh, hey, we've got Ashley back in it. I was like, well... Kirsty. Kirsty, not Ashley. Why don't I say Ashley? Kirsty, yes, Kirsty. Yeah, she's back in it for like two seconds, right? <laughs> well, and what's really interesting is that I've heard people complain, oh, but her personality completely changes. No, it doesn't. Well, in the second one, she's the heroine, but then she's running away from hell. So it doesn't take much. And she's saving some mute blonde girl from destruction. But really, her through line in that is, let's just run away, shall we? Mm. And they they said, well, why would she sell out? Like, even if her husband was she, the idea of making a bargain with Pinhead. uh, Sorry, go back to movie one. Pinhead turns up and says, how about if I bring you Frank? Will that get you off my back? That's the first thing she does. Yes, straight out. Have my uncle. Spare my life. Yeah, exactly. So if she's already got the, I mean, it's a bit weird that she randomly goes straight for five. You go, if she'd have got, I would have preferred in that dialogue for <laughs> yeah, it to be, my husband's a bit of an ass. Do you want him? No, no, I'm not taking one in exchange for one anymore. Well, okay. Well, there's his partner. He's a bit dodgy too. No. <laughs> well, as it happens, I do happen to know he's been cheating with a couple of women. How about if I chuck them? That makes five. Come on, five's going to be good. How much dialogue is that to write? Not very much at all. <laughs> and then he goes, all right, five for one. That does me. And then the bargain is a bargain. Instead of which, she goes straight to five. <laughs> Everyone who does bargaining <laughs> negotiation knows that that's not a good strategy. What if he got me? Yeah, five's no good. You'll have to get me 20. <laughs> I don't know 20 shitheads. Come on. <laughs> Where's this one from here? This is the first one in a while where we had Clive Barker coming at least touch and feel the script. Mm. So he came and looked towards the end of it. I mean, Leo, I sent over you to you this morning. Yeah, the uh, deleted scene version. Yeah, it's a deleted scene version of when Kirsty's chatting with Pinhead about making the deal. And this is the bit I'm assuming that Clive Barker got to touch. Because this is the bit where he starts talking to her about the events from Hellraiser 1 and 2 to yeah. try and keep this continuity. Um, I'm not actually quite sure why they took it out. I think it, they worried it might have confused people that haven't seen the first lot, it being so long ago. One of the things I would like to touch on at this point is that I am kind of upset that Frank is so boring, really. I mean, he's a bit of a moustache twirler. Like, you have to be pretty much on the point of just rewriting the guy who's there and the lines that he's saying in your head. Because he's not really very 
exciting or mysterious the way that he's written and indeed acted in the first movie and you go oh so this guy's supposed to be kind of sultry and attractive and dangerous but and and i think one of the things about it is that he has to be dangerous but kind of fun whereas actually he just comes across as a bit of a yeah yeah, as a bit of a douche yeah and you're like you don't understand why it is that that julia yearns for him all the stuff on that side is done by claire higgins she kind of communicates that to you because she is a good actress but there's no work coming on the other side to show why that might be the case and i mean what has occurred to me is that in the era of 50 shades of gray and stalker sparkly vampires frank's really not cutting the mustard he doesn't really (laughs) i mean except for the fact that i suddenly realized with hellraiser that um hellraiser is kind of like a an s&m 80s leather tennessee williams play because julia isn't a woman she's a gay man really it's Mm. that kind of streetcar named desire thing frank's really supposed to be like the cool gay guy who's very worldly and ushers this young man into the world of uh, of homosexuality and living your life and accepting who you are which of course frank totally fails to and so they you know gay men tennessee williams being case have translated that into a worldly man who ushers a woman into this period of sexual awakening which is why women really like those plays and books so much because it does communicate something that's a common experience between gay men and women together oh and it's god quite, but and frank, the configuration will be a metaphor for aids before you're done you know Liam. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not going to go there but i'm just going to say i mean frank really doesn't do the job or cut the mustard in any way i mean in a way uh, craig sheffer in five is far more that type of character because of the fact of all the conjuring and the fact that he loves his daughter and all of these things that he's got this side that's actually pretty decent and then he's got all the other stuff as well and if he if frank and the craig chef character had been exactly the same more or less then you would have understood it because oh he's so clever and he's really nice with kids and so on yeah coke and hookers but you know and taking money off corpses and stuff, but really nice kids. <laughs> and, like that. <laughs> and this guy, the guy who's in Hellseeker, who's that, yeah, not only is the, the horror diluted and watered down, but in addition, that character is nowhere near as good as Craig Shepard's character. He's just some random dude who wanders around, and then every time a woman comes along, he's like, oh, I wonder if I can bang that. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's his through line. Isn't um Six really doesn't work out for me. But I don't agree with the idea that uh, Kirsty is any better than she was in Hellraiser. Yeah, she'll sell a bunch of people out to stop Pinhead getting his hands on her. And that's fine. And I don't mind that. And then we get on to Deader. Hmm. I mean, that was a weird movie before they Hellraiser spliced it. That would have been a perfectly fine horror movie without the Hellraiser association. But with it, I think it it works. I don't really like the fact that, I mean, far from anything else, I think the moment that you decide to call a character Winter Le Marchand, <laughs> you're like, you're on to a loser here. I don't want to know anything that Winter de Le Marchand is, whatever it is, is yeah, I don't want to know. On the other side of that, it's got a lot of stuff that's really weird in it. We've got a female protagonist again. First time since three. Yeah. So that's good. And Carrie Wurra, I think, is an underrated actress who 
should be doing a lot better stuff. And I was unfortunately burdened with not having a problem with doing a lot of soft porn when she was younger. And so then people didn't take her seriously. And in this, she's really good. I I was like, okay, no, hang on, wait a second. Why isn't this woman more famous and more well-regarded? Oh, because she did a lot of softcore porn when she was younger. Great. Thanks, guys. thing with Dedder, I I wasn't a fan. It was weird. Mm. But the fact that you had all these visions going on meant it really easy to write. Yo, we'll have some weird thing going on. And then it happens. Oh, I'm stabbed. And then I wake up somewhere else. So you just go from scene to scene without any kind of logical explanation and that's i found that quite lazy in its writing for it there's no real thought behind it no no there isn't and then and and other stuff in there i just couldn't quite work out towards the end so winter needed her to open the box he couldn't open how many people has opened the box in the movies (laughs) yeah everyone knows you just (laughs) tap that bit on the side and then move your thumb around and it does itself doesn't it but he couldn't right and then at the end she so Wait, so Pinhead wants her because she's opened the box. So she kills herself. Yeah. And that stops him from getting her. Yeah. Well, how, how does that work? Because well, because people who go to the Cenobite realm aren't really dead. We know that from movie one. They're but not she dead, start, dead. But once you start pulling people apart physically, all right, their soul's still alive, right? But they're physically not alive anymore. Yeah, but they're in the Cenobite realm then, which uh, technically I suppose she was when she, she stabbed herself. But, he, but then, of course, we're in that point where it's like, and we're not going to think about that anymore. <laughs> yes. Oh, neither are you. It was an act of self-annihilation, and so therefore, blah. You have to explain this to me because I haven't seen this film. Okay, Winter Doobly Donks, he's going through all this because he believes at the end of it all he will be he'll be able to reign in hell. Is there anything in the movie that would give substance to that thought he had? Because as far as I'm aware, Pinhead turns up and goes, you are you. No, you can't be my boss. Die! Well, first of all, he's Winter Le Marchand, so he's in the bloodline of Hellraiser bloodline. So that obviously gives him <laughs> chops, because everybody loves Hellraiser blood. No, wait. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he's a descendant of the original Puzzle Box maker, right. for a start. Second of all, as I, I had to reread this, because I didn't really understand, there was one bit, which obviously is part of the original script that that was this was born from where he brings people back to life after they've killed themselves you know like, well how does that happen and fit in with hellraiser oh it doesn't he's just as it puts learned necromancy <laughs> oh, fine, okay i assume he bought necromancy for dummies or you know looked up some well as they do in these days uh do some youtube videos you know just uh how to raise people from the dead you know as you do i bet, I bet um, julia's kicking herself now why didn't i try that yeah exactly <laughs> It's like, that's a complete side tangent. So now in the Hellraiser universe, it is possible to learn necromancy, which is nothing to do with Pinhead or anything else. And if you do that, you say, well, I've learned a bit of necromancy. I think I'll be able to rule hell now. <laughs> I am ready for the next step. Please send me the next book in your correspondence course. Um, you know, yeah, okay. But, I mean, I mean, one of the things about it is that there's charming. Yeah, I quite like the fact... I mean, you've got to remember, this is a film from 2005. If it didn't have, at this point, we're well into, oh, look, it's a spooky ghost on a fan footage, blah, blah, blah. At least it's a horror movie that isn't doing any of those things. And yes, there is a lot of, and then she woke up and it was kind of a dream, or was it a dream? Do we know? Do we care? What have you? Blah, 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 blah. At least the Craig Shepherd one is like, it's taunting him with the idea that this is a puzzle he can solve 
when it really isn't. Yeah. Um, and in a way, the kind of that sets a precedent for it allows you to do that. Should you be allowed to do that just because you're allowed because there's form for it? Not sure. But, you know, I like the fact that there was this whole thing with a crazy Eastern European cult. It does get to this point where it's like, now we're getting somewhere because, you know, the box has been in world, a trench in World War One. It's gone to a house in London. It's been in an L.A. detective, in the realm of the, you know, L.A. detective scene. It's been in space. It's been, the box has been everywhere. And it's just got, you know, you could have like, you know, the puzzle box with like little stamps from all over the world. Right? <laughs> but yeah, it's, you, you, you know, you don't go through, you know, it's not the same old thing. It's not, you know, because it, like we say, five and six are very similar. Yeah. Okay. So one of them's in LA and another one's in another sort of slightly dingier all, part. All I'll you know, say on this is I, I, I liked Inferno and I know that it was obviously originally written for something else and tacked on. But it still feel it does feel Hellraisery, like you just talked about. But this does. I I, Deader, I, I yeah, thought this film. Awesome. I thought Deader was fine, but it is absolutely like just Pinhead turns up. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's, it's not connected with the rest of it. He just turns up. Oh, at the but end. no, but there is. There are things like, for example, that the people who are surrounding this underground Eastern European cult uh, space. Are all kind of fetishy type people yeah. and they, oh, yeah, on the train. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that whole that whole strand is like, well, we haven't been there for a bit. Okay, like really, not really. I mean, yeah, okay. So there was coke and hookers in the five. We'll have our own Hellraiser movie with coke and hookers. In fact, we won't invite you. You know that whole thing. Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah. I mean, after three, I mean, no, it went from a world of, of kind of supernaturally induced pleasure and pain to the limits of the human imagination to a guy who owns a nightclub. Mm. And then in space. And then, <laughs> you know, it's like, it, the thing is that Seven kind of gets away with it on the grounds that we've had so much randomness yeah. before that another layer of, The one thing I will stick on, though, is where did necromancy come from? Yeah, Nobody yeah. did necromancy before. Nobody's probably ever going to do no. it again. I think, and it's just in this one movie. Oh, yeah, I could just wake up dead people. I what? Think, <laughs> I think Deader does win an award. Now, when you watch a lot of horror movies, you're used to characters doing things that are a bit stupid. Like, oh, what's that noise? I'm going to go down and investigate with a toothpick. Whereas this one <laughs> has the award where if you wake up and you've got a six-inch blade stuck through your chest and hanging out your back, the best thing to do is to pull it out. No, no, no. Actually, the handle was coming out of her back. That's why she had to wedge it in a cupboard. Which right. is like, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, I mean, no props to her for the fact that what I noticed there was she did some spectacular nude acting at that point. You had seen the fact that she was very comfortable, weirdly, despite the fact that she had a boob job, then had the boob job reversed, like the actress. Because I was like, at this point, what is her deal? So I read her whole biography and how that she had the problem with her body image. It's like, well, no, you don't, because most people surrounded by an entire set full of people and a cameraman and a director in just a shirt and panties covered in fake blood with a fake knife sticking out of their back would feel it. It wouldn't matter how committed they were to their role. You would be able to see a tad of self-consciousness on their face. Not her. She is just acting. I'm just in my room, naked with a knife sticking through me, covered in fake blood. She is naked, but it's totally not sexual. It's like, oh my god, this is terrible. And in that one scene, it kind of works. I mean, that kind of the scene. If the whole film was built around that, which it is to an extent, except it's not built, 
that is the key scene in the whole film where she wakes up with a knife sticking through and has to wedge it in a cupboard to get it out. Because, but what's really weird is that it completely betrays the ending. Because it's like, if she's self-destructive, she's like, oh, okay, I'll just lie down and die then. Yeah. Instead of which, she struggles to stay alive, only to go, do you know what? I've had a knife through me before. I'm going to do it again now at the end. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't really... What? Um, so yeah, there's a, there's, I mean, this is the point. That's why it's not built. It's not consistent. She does whatever she does for the scene to be whatever the scene is at the time that it happens. And, you know, so it's not a great movie, but it's a billion times better than the teenage haunted house of shocks and horror. Up until I'd seen Hell World, everything up to that point is like, okay, this kind of starts to hang together out of a bit like a scrapbook. One of the things I should point out at this point is that I've noticed that as the score gets worse, the script also gets worse. Yes. And the, yeah, the music yeah. gets worse and worse for other yeah. movies. Yeah, and the score for eight is terrible. Plus, they couldn't even be bothered to give a character a nightclub. They just had him have a party in order to <laughs> crowbar in a, a selection of new metal, Z-string kind of, do you want to buy this? Oh, no, no. But what if we put it in a soundtrack? For a horror movie with Superman in it. Superman the douche, you know, yeah. carrying on his uh, through line of being a douche into Man of Steel. Superman in this movie is going to be a complete douche. Like, really the douchiest douche. You've got a teen douche as well who just wants to party and get laid. And guess what's going to happen to him? Yes, you guessed exactly what's going to happen to him. And in fact, it's not even going to be as good as when you imagined it happening. It's going to be slightly worse. Oh, and then there's a black guy. He's kind of a token douche, token black douche, who also gets the same thing. And then there's some random British girl who's supposed to be, I suppose, a bit bitchy, but isn't really, doesn't get any dialogue. And she dies first. Because she's goth. Because she's goth, yeah. yeah for I'd no real, I mean, it just, what? It doesn't make any, like, she's not, I mean, she's not given a chance to be odious so you don't mind when she gets picked off. She just happens to die. Okay, That's there we go. But this, this is weird. <laughs> see, see, How World and Deader kept, both came out in the same year, 2005. Yeah. Now, and I don't know, I've not looked back to, I couldn't, uh, see whether or not they are actually shot back to back because the Cenobite designs are exactly the same. Yeah. So, I'm not sure if they were actually shot back to back or not. Well, yeah, they can share resources. Well, the same guy is directing them all. They're all the same producers, all the same writers. And what's really interesting is that up until this point, they've picked up a script for another horror movie that has been sent into the Miramax slush pile and gone, oh, this is kind of Hellraiser-y. Let's put Pinhead in this. This one's not Hellraiser-y at all. Let's put Pinhead in it. Yeah. This is the thing I I want to pick up on this movie, what I've read about it. They're actually going about video games in this one and video game obsession it's just in the yeah. first the first movies were about sexual perversions and you know insanity it was it was underground it was other it was a, a subculture and like video games by 2005 fairly freaking mainstream thank you very much it's it's hardly a That's dingy kids one yeah, but, yeah, that, but, 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 yeah. A video game hysteria, we all know it's nonsense because we've all grown up on video games. We know it's a clique of, of baby boomers who just uh, aren't sort of getting out, it. The yeah. computer game did look shit. Oh, I don't God, know. it looked awful. I, I also want to point out that it really has nothing to do with a video game. In fact, I don't even know why no. they mention a video that was just game. How that I mean, together, if you want to watch all. a video game, uh, a movie, a horror movie about a video game that kills people, go and watch Stay Alive mm. because 
you know, that's the video game kills you horror movie. This one says, oh yeah, it's a video game, we all play it, let's go to a party. But it's exactly. all about... It's just a contrivance. Yeah, yeah. it's all... Together, that's all it is. Well, it's, this one's all aimed at the youth market, isn't oh, it? God, you've got computer yeah. games, you've got parties, yeah. you've got alcohol, you've got sex, you've got mobile phones as a major, yeah. major point in the actual film. Yeah, yeah horrible blocky PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, from like 2001 I, or something. It's, it's a real bait and switch, because I'm looking at the, the DVD cover, I presume, because it never got released in the cinema, and, you know, you've got, the byline is evil goes online, and you've got Matrix characters in front of, like, Pinhead's face. Yeah. So there's a real impression this is supposed to be about a video game, whereas the video game is kind it's of a MacGuffin. Fool. Yes, no. it's kind of a MacGuffin. P- Pinhead beca- turns around and becomes a slasher again in this one. Yeah. Turns up every now and again and hacks someone to pieces and then no. disappears. Yeah, he becomes I mean, a forum moderator. That's what he becomes. Yes. <laughs> but, was, and, I mean, you know, Lance Henriksen is there doing all the Lance Henriksen that Lance Henriksen can muster. But, you know, <laughs> why did you do this movie, Lance? Oh, well, check cleared, you know. That's it. By the most disappointing part about uh, <laughs> so, Lance Hendrickson is is such a kind of it's so underwhelming and disappointing that in the end Pinhead actually you know he he tenders out the job of killing Lance Hendrickson oh one of you guys do it I'm just going to stand at the back and stare at him whilst you work <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> at the end I guess can't be bothered to do the hook thing today it's just not worth it. I mean, the, the the film was that bad, and I can't believe I even wrote down notes about how to improve the ending. <laughs> but but they did have so the whole the beginning. Thing. I think is the. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there was this great bit at the end where you, where he's there and he's he's got the box and he just starts playing with it, and it's that moment he puts his finger on the box. You just wanted to end it, but obviously they went, oh shit, we need to get some more Cenobites in here. Quick, let's go in and let's have a bit of a CGI bloodfest mm. as they kill him. Well, yeah, but the whole point is that up until that point, the whole thing's been set dressing, that mm. it's all been, oh, it's all hallucinogens. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, okay, this isn't what? No. Which is why Pinhead can be a slasher, because he's just a hallucination yeah. brought on by ASD and kids who play but this too is, many computer games. But what this happens, is kids. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> but this is why when he's got the box and he's just about to open it, if you cut there, you're not answering whether or not it's real or not. And anyone who's seen him is you're going, making a big assumption about the filmmakers there. <laughs> well, no, but that <laughs> yeah. is right. I but don't, you're right. Yeah. You're, no, you're, you're totally right. right. You're no, totally but the, right. Whole, the whole point about it is that they've already doctored three other scripts to put Pinhead into him, and they've done not too bad a job it kind of works most of the time. I mean, even in Hellseeker, the Hellraiser bits work but as a Hellraiser bit. Yeah. Whereas this one, the Hellraiser bits are just like, what, 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 what are we doing? I don't even understand yeah, what's going yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Why do we even bother with this? Whereas in all the others, they really shoehorn, I mean, they really shoehorn him in. They will force that foot into that glass. <laughs> yeah. They don't care. And in this one, they went, should we bother doing that? No. Cause there's so many things you could do to just like, you know, if they'd have taken the whole thing where it's like, uh, if more lines of dialogue, like, but this is just a computer game. And then he turns up and goes, no, it is not. And does all this stuff. And you're like, you're not sure whether it's real or whether it's not, or is it hell? And then you're like, but that's all the Hellraiser stuff. And that's all the Hellraiser goodness. Mm -hmm. If they'd have just bothered to just tweak it that way, it would have made some sense, but it just doesn't at all ever. Mm. And it's kind of Hellraiser does soar as well and not nearly as well. I mean, you know, and then, oh, big hook comes down on a rail and impales someone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, and then there's a thing and it cuts oh, your the head contraction, in half. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, so, you know, you're just this limp kind of, 
And you're like, okay, well, maybe next time they buy a script, it'll be better. Oh, no, they're actually going to write an actual Hellraiser script to make a film. There's only one person in this assemblage who's actually, actually seen the movie. Well, I was having a little look about this. So you talk about the fact that they were going to write a movie. They were going to write a movie, and they were going to write a reboot. Mm. But it was only when to the fact that they realised that they weren't going to get that film done and they were going to lose the rights to it. Yeah, yeah. That they rushed out Revelations. It had a budget of yep. 300,000 and it was filmed in three weeks. Yeah. We're, uh, we're talking kind of Fantastic Four 90s. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And this is the okay. thing. This is why we don't, because in this one, we don't have Doug Bradley as Pinhead. Mm. Uh, he was offered it, but through the, the, the turnaround of it, I don't know maybe how much money he was going to get paid as well. Probably. Because he did do some shit, didn't he? When you look yeah. at some of the others, he turned around and said, no, I won't, I won't do this one. Wow. Only 74 minutes long as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the film in itself, okay, when you actually boil it down into what it's trying to do, it is almost like it's kind of a remake reboot because it is bringing it back to the original, uh, the original film. It's taking the same plot points from it. We've got, again, someone that has opened up the box and then someone that's then trying to kill people to try and feed him. But it's done in a way that that isn't really revealed until... Mm closer to the end of it plus it has huge sections in found footage style well yeah and this is the proxy i'm i actually like found footage movies if done right and this right from the opening start just starts breaking all found footage rules you've got this lovely bit where you've got them in a car you know one of them's filming the other one driving and he's chatting but you're Mm. cutting scenes why who's who's (laughs) editing to cut the scene (laughs) but the music that's playing in the car is constantly going right so and, and and there's and then it cuts in. You've got because they go travelling and then they disappear and then the families mourn for the loss of their sons. A private investigator gets hold of the video camera. The aforementioned video camera is mentioned by Leo earlier. Yeah, <laughs> it's well out of date. And uh, the sister of one of the guys, who is also the girlfriend of the other guy, starts looking at the footage of the movie, and that's how it starts cutting to this bit. And there's a whole bit where she's watching one of the guys have sex with this girl. Because uh, the other guy's filming it in a toilet. He then right. takes the camera away. But then it starts, the, the film cuts back to it, not in found footage, so we can see the sex happening. And then it cuts back to the girl looking at the video camera reacting to that scene. Right. So you're like, well, hang on a minute, how is she seeing that? Yeah. Um, you know, well, I mean, the whole thing just seems like, I mean, my favourite thing is the description I heard someone said, and Pinhead played by some bloke they found down the pub. <laughs> just like, yeah. And voiced by somebody else. Yeah, is just, he voiced by another person altogether? Yeah. I don't think you'd have thought they'd have tried to find someone with a vaguely scary voice. Yeah, like, the voice is awful. Uh, it's awful. Um, but so it, it goes to show... He wasn't Brammy, was he? <laughs> oh, that would have been great. Oh, demons do so... I can't do Brummy. <laughs> oh, a Welsh. Welsh would be good. Demons to some. Angels together, isn't it? <laughs> You opened the box and we came right here by now. Um, but, yeah. but it shows, doesn't it? You've got to get the voice right. If, you yeah, don't, if you're not having Doug Bradley doing Pinhead, so mm. if they do, because they are doing a remake, I believe. That's what I've heard. But how many people could do a Pinhead in Pinhead? Demons to some, angels to others. See, I could do it just now. How did they not find someone who could just rip it off? That's, oh, that, that, that's one of those things where it's mind bogglingly stupid. Um, yeah, and I think that, I think possibly though, the worst thing about Revelations is that in its concept, execution, and idea, it is better than Hellworld. 
which had a higher budget (laughs) and more time and actually has Doug Bradley in it. It, Like that's like a sort of backdoor insult. It's like, yeah, still better than Hellworld, though, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, unfortunately, it is better than Hellworld. Uh, Not a, yeah, it really is the franchise, the little franchise that. drowned in ignominy despite the fact that they had quite a good thing i mean this is the thing that those last two movies really screw up they had a good thing going as long as they just stuck to the broad point and took any kind of because what it shows is that people are still writing those weird horror movies like that we like from the 80s and from some of the 90s and from the 70s people are still writing those scripts they just don't get turned into horror movies anymore because everybody's like, oh, no, it doesn't have, like, webcams and ghosts opening and shutting doors and people being possessed in it. And, then, yeah, the fact that they had this good thing going where as long as you stuck to the general themes, I and mean, this is one of the things that always annoyed me about The Crow is the fact that the first three movies, or like, the first movie does something, the second movie just takes the basic, oh, it's kind of crowy, and I kind of went with that. Third one's like, yeah, it's still kind of crowy, and I kind of went with that. And the fourth one went, yeah, let's chuck out all the rock music, but I like the rock music. Let's chuck out all the urban decay, but I liked all the urban decay. Let's chuck out just about everything, set it in a desert and make it a spaghetti western. No, this isn't the crow anymore. You've done it. And that's exactly the thing. Hellraiser had this thing where all you had to do was take a script that was in the right vein for what you wanted to do, chuck a bit of pinhead in, uh, make sure someone opens the box, chains come out of the walls, flesh ripping, poetic language, off you go. That's all you... You had one job. (laughs) What's worse is that in nine... Yeah, we're going to to put all those ingredients in for $300,000 with a bloke we found down the pub. Blah, blah, blah but it's still better than one that just doesn't do any of that <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah, right, okay. So, uh, yeah, we, we've just been through. Uh, we've been, as they say, to hell and back. Uh, but if we maybe haven't been far enough, Ian, where might people go to tell us to get our hands on that puzzle box and do a podcast where we open it live during a webcast to see what happens? Well, one place you can go to summon us would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about, and for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S Kids dot podomatic.com please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download your pc for dark reasons of your own Uh, but this is anywhere most recent podcasts can be found for the legacy of our podcasts you must type into your web browser the 80s kids and that's again as in letters and you will uh 80s kids at blogspot.com Yes, that's right. And you will find yourself within the 80s Kids Archive, which will one day have a complete archive of all our podcasts ever. Uh, but if this is not enough for you, you can hunt down individual 80s kids in such places as... Well, leostableford.blogspot.com, where you'll find where there's a gap in the archive between like uh, the early 30s and 90. Uh, and those podcasts may be found there if you go hunting around for them eventually it will all be synchronized but there's also loads of other stuff 
on my blog there. Uh, but I can be found in other places on the internet. So can Normal Justin. Where can you be found, Normal <laughs> Justin? Uh, you can be found along with, obviously, my illustrations of flensing and flaying. Obviously, that's what I like to do in my spare time. Um, and that's on my DeviantArt page, which is justinwyatt.deviantart.com. And other Justin may be found. Uh, you can find all my uh, horror writings at uh, jrpark.co.uk. So there we go. Uh, I just need to personally end note with, with a little poem from me. Well, it's not from me, actually. It's a similar bit of work. My blood runs cold. My memory has just been sold. My angel is the Cenobite. Angel is the Cenobite. Very nice. So there we go, the interweb. It pulls out everything. <laughs> so uh, soon you'll be able to read uh, Justin's Hellraiser fan fiction. Uh, oh, that's, it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that Hellraiser Harry Potter slash fic, isn't it? Uh, that's right there. Um, and on that bombshell, <laughs> we shall once more retreat into our puzzle box and uh, see you all again next time. But yes. for now, bye-bye. See you all next week, or I'll rip your soul apart. <laughs> Goodbye. See you later. I had, a, I had, I just had a thought though that uh, the time is ripe for a, a Hellraiser Taken crossover project. You know, can you imagine Hellraiser and the guy from Taken having a conversation? <laughs> I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> we are demons to some, angels to others. I will find you. I will tear you. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, Liam Neeson versus Doug Bradley, yeah. the ultimate showdown. You can even, I've even got to tell you, taken to hell. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. Do it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs>